If you felt everything that this job throws at you, you wouldn't be able to function. When you work somewhere where the community, the prosecutors, the mayor, your city council, like when those people value what you do, it helps you sometimes get through some of those, maybe those little rough patches. A lot of departments being proactive that you can go places to, to get help. Welcome to Three Cops Talk. On this podcast, three active duty police officers discuss behind the scenes stories and real life accounts of what it's like to be a cop. Every episode, you'll get an inside look at the challenges and dangers they face on a daily basis, as well as the triumphs and inspirational moments that make it all worth it. If you want to understand more about the men and women who put their lives on the line for us every day, then this is the show for you. And now your hosts, Chris, Scott, and Sean. On this two-part series, we're again joined by clinical psychologist, Dr. Jennifer Pohaska, to better understand some of the statistics behind the concerning trend of police suicides. If you have any ideas or topics for the show, please reach out to us at 3CopsTalk at gmail.com. That's the number 3CopsTalk at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach us through social media, our details are in the show notes. The views and opinions expressed in this episode belong solely to the hosts and do not represent the views of any professional organization. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, folks, welcome back. You know, Chris Scott and I, we've all gone all over the place, but we're clearly not in Kansas anymore, but perhaps maybe we should be. Mm -hmm. This is yet another show we're doing uh, with a subject matter expert from Kansas that's well steeped in the matter of police officers' minds. That's because Scott got that Ethernet line direct to Kansas. He finally bought it. <laughs> finally bought it. Yeah, he, he finally got the Ethernet cable. It goes all the way from my son's fraternity right. house. It's a direct line run here from KU all the way, all the way to Illinois. Yeah, now Scott's getting access to uh, all the local news, weather, and city council meetings for Lawrence, Kansas. But best yet, he's getting uh, access to the Eudora Moms Facebook page. <laughs> sister city, right? <laughs> But like I said, this is another great show that we're doing with someone from Kansas that's really into the idea of not only helping the police get better mentally, but maybe all of our listeners can learn some things from this show regarding suicide. As we've often referenced that in our work for decades, we've never really effectively dealt with it because we were always such a bunch of hard asses. And despite helping many of the people that we served through it, it was rarely dealt with by anyone internally, uh, at least to law enforcement from the ground level. Uh, effectively as well. And on a previous show, Chris had asked one of our regular favorite guests, maybe perhaps at this point, our most favorite guest. Most favorite. Right. 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 Not just because you're here. You really are a favorite. It's a little like a favorite nation state and trading partner for her. It's much like the United States. She's getting the raw end of the deal. <laughs> right. Although people can't see her there, she's with us. And by right. now, you know that patient sigh of resignation uh, that is often emblematic of suffering fools with dignity. Oh, yeah. It's the Three Cops Talk resident shrink, Dr. Jennifer Pohaska, or as we know her, Dr. J, and as the kids know her, J-Pro. <laughs> if you go back to episode 111, where Dr. J was talking to us about the psychological testing process, Chris had asked Dr. J to come back and talk with us about officer suicide. And as she always does, she came back to us with some really great presentation material in an organized manner. And uh, that's what we're here to cover today. There's been a lot of things to talk about with officer suicide of late. Some of the bigger agencies across the country are seeing patterns in it. And maybe that has to do with size. Um, but I saw another one today involving an officer from Cincinnati that had taken their own life. 
And all of these things are tragic, but in some ways preventable. I know you guys have said numerous times, we can't talk about this enough. We we have to get our arms around this or we're going to leave our profession a shell of its former self. Uh, Scott, you had sent an article about some of the things that were happening in Chicago. So why don't you launch us with your thoughts and we'll Chris get into yours. Yeah, that was the one thing that came out. That was a story that just came out. It was in the Chicago Sun-Times for those of you that would want to read the Chicago Sun-Times. But um, basically the headline of the story is despite troubling rise in suicides, CPD falling short on getting help for officers, the inspector general finds. So basically, you know, all this talk that they do about wanting to help with mental health of these officers and knowing the things that these officers are dealing with in big cities like this, they're understaffed, overworked, um, you name it. They don't have the support of their politicians, their mayors, their prosecutors. They are struggling and this is happening. And it's just lip service that they're doing this for these people and they're not. And and it's 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 a shame that it takes an inspector general to do an investigation to find out that they're not doing anything for it. You ask any of those officers, and we all know officers from some of those bigger cities, that it's just not it's they're not doing it. Um, I think as a profession, it's picking up and it's getting better as a whole. But, you know, in cities like Chicago, unfortunately, um, they're more, you know, concerned about trying to um, you know, get rid of cops or, or cut their funding or take away their days off there. And, and then they wonder why they have these kinds of problems. So for those of you that, you know, want to research that a little bit, that's, that story's out there and it, it kind of shines a little more light on what, what they are dealing with in a big city like Chicago. Is the Chicago Sun-Times a pay site? Um, I think, I, I mean, I don't make that sergeant's money, so <laughs> I'm kind of looking out for the folks or listeners here, you know? I don't know. He must be in the money. He bought the pay site, got Ethernet. I don't know. We have to do an audit. I think audit. <laughs> Right. I take the newspapers that people are done reading at Dunkin' Donuts on my way into work. And then I just, so it's, it's, it's kind of, it's hit or miss the information that I get. Yeah. The thrifty Norwegian (laughs) strikes again. Now, Chris, Florida always appears to be the epicenter for positive police vibes, thanks largely to its elected officials and police leadership. So what are you seeing down there regarding suicides? I think here, I think one of the things that they've done down here is they've taken it from like, I think a lot of things that we've known, like when we were younger and we were kind of coming up with the department, it was always that, you know, they were having an affair, there was a financial difficulty or they did something, you know, they did something wrong in internal affairs. I think it was more focused on that when a cop committed suicide, he, he did something or she did something wrong. And down here, I think they've turn the corner in regards to it's just not those things it's what we see it's 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 what we have to deal with it's stuff outside of police work military people um just your everyday you know just your everyday life and 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 what you have to deal with a little bit more progressive on what the actual foundation of suicide is and just not the whole what 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 the speech that we got wine women take you know that's why we do stuff and lose our jobs they they're they're much more proactive on you know there are multiple reasons why someone would take their own life just not those three things well that's great to hear especially coming from such a big state well dr j we're going to finally let you talk to us because when you do it's always great and we can just listen and enjoy like our listeners can so why don't you lead us into this topic and then we can kind of go from there and badger you as we usually do 
Sure. Sure. So, you know, I, um, so one of the things that is kind of a new branch off for me is doing a little bit more of like media stuff so that officers and leaders within organizations can get more content faster. That's relevant to exactly what's happening in the moment. So, um, there are some agencies that I've worked with in the past that have had spikes in suicide completions and also really serious mental health issues pop right around the first of the year. And it's not just one agency, it's actually several. And so, um, one of the things I was getting ready for as, you know, January was here was how do I produce a, a short or quick video about uh, kind of informing people on what to look for and their officers with regards to suicide risk and and what do you do if you are worried about someone? The, the basics. So, you know, the new generation has like an attention span of about 30 seconds, which I actually think is like Scott, Sean and Chris, all of you are the same. Mm-hmm. So um, you guys are getting along well. <laughs> no, that's 30 <laughs> seconds combined. We each get 10. We've adopted we that. Get no, 10. We've, we've adopted that. <laughs> I think shit, 30 Hi, seconds is a long show. Wait, okay. what? <laughs> exactly. Where are we? Where are we oh my gosh. Oh man. I swear. I swear. So, so one of, one of the things we've been doing it kind of trying to reach a different audience and reach the younger audience, which is much easier to reach through media is actually start filming some stuff. So, um, filming some stuff on suicide. And I reached out to you guys and said, Hey, I know Chris brought up the last episode that we did. Um, Hey, maybe we need to talk about some suicide stuff. And I'm like, Oh, well, dang, I've got it ready. So let's just do it. So, and then I do talks on suicide yeah. at agencies and I, I teach a lot of peer support classes. And that's one of the classes I teach is how to respond appropriately as a peer. If you're worried about one of your fellow officers. Can so. you take us yeah, through yeah, a real quick snapshot of the numbers, yeah. like where your data goes back to and why you yeah. started there and then where we're mm-hmm. at now? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. So, um, you know, 2020 to 2022, all the way through those years was real, like complicated and, and a lot was going on with COVID and, and deaths and, and all sorts of stuff was just mm-hmm. odd. So, um, I went back kind of all the way to 2018 and I take a look at kind of what's going on in the last, you know, five ish mm-hmm. years or so. Um, try to get a snapshot of that. And that's also kind of, my general rule of thumb is when I'm doing research or trying to pull the actual scientific data on these things, I like to keep everything within five right. years if I can. So you know, a lot that happens culturally within five mm-hmm. years, I think, especially in policing. So, and those can affect the numbers on suicide. So, you know, on average, we have approximately, you know, somewhere between 130 to 150 suicide completions a year in mm-hmm. law enforcement uh, nationwide. And those are the ones that are counted. Um, usually we kind of go to blue help for right now uh, to count. Um, but there's other places you can go to FBI is working on the database and that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're surfacing right around 150 suicide a year. That's actually more than double uh, the line of duty deaths if you count like felonious line mm-hmm. of duty deaths. So if you think about like yeah, in 2022, yeah. we had 74 felonious um, line of duty deaths, but then in 2022, we had 155 suicides. So, you know, oh. yeah, it, we're more likely to die by our mm-hmm. own hand than we are to die in the line of duty feloniously mm-hmm. at least. So, Doc, yeah. percentage wise, how does that number compare to the rest of the population? So um, it's definitely greater than the general population. So it, it technically it's 1.54 times more than the general population. And female officers technically have a little bit higher rates of suicide oh, really? um, attempts and completions. Yep. There's a there's some theories around that, one of which has to do with um, just in general, females in the general population commit su- or attempt suicide more, but males are more lethal. So 
you get women in law enforcement who have access to firearms. Well, firearms are the most lethal way to commit suicide. And so you're kind of upping the potential right. risk for it to be actually lethal. So that's one thing. And also, um, historic, when we look at the data, the data does say that women who gravitate towards law enforcement are more likely to have childhood trauma than men. Um, again, also mm. I'll point out that women in general have more childhood trauma than men. So it's kind of like a stats game here, but um, childhood trauma mm -hmm. is associated with an increased potential for suicidality. So there's a lot of numbers that go into it. There's, it's clear as mud. Let's put it that way. It's hard to exactly know, but. So yeah. with that, so with that, with the, with the childhood trauma, is that mm -hmm. when they come in this line of work, when they see it as often as we see it, as horrific as it is, do they relive it? Is that kind of the. Here's, here's what I would say. Like, and I do new hire psych evaluations. We do hundreds a year. And so I will tell you that I think a lot of people come into law enforcement because they want to help others. Like no one helps them. That's mm -hmm. a big reason, you know? And so this yeah, profession right, kind of right. grab it, it grabs those people. And I think if you come into this profession and then you realize sometimes I am powerless and sometimes I actually can't help people, even though I've done my best and done everything I could, um, there's some injury I think that comes with that, you know, some, some psychological damage for sure. And I think that that is more likely to impact people who've got childhood trauma. Yeah. Back on episode 111, we talked with you about the psychological testing process for police officers. This topic didn't come up at that time, but do you think that process yeah. is missing a lot on this? Uh, so I'll tell you that there's only, we can't 100% predict exactly what someone's going to do. People are mysteries. They are great, great complexities. So we know some general basics, but we can't catch everything in those tests. And then there are some people that have absolutely no risk factors coming into the field, but over the course of their career, the exposures that they have, the stress in the organization, mm -hmm. you know, marital problems, alcohol problems that develop way later in response to trauma, um, that increases your risk. So we can't catch everything. Yeah. So one of the yeah. one of the things I wanted to ask you about that, since you're touching on that, I noticed from some of your statistics that a lot of these the the average years on the job is right around the neighborhood, yeah. right around about 16 years, right? Um, which is which is kind of scary when you look at like the age ranges of the people. But so, <clears throat> do you think is it is it because we've talked about this before, like in this profession, that it's not like the like in the military, you're rapid fire exposed to some real severe traumatic things and you develop PTSD. Whereas in law enforcement, people seem to develop it over a longer period of time. So do you think there's any correlation there that it's happening in that 16 year range? Because that's when it's kind of starting to come to a head with people and they're experiencing those symptoms. You know, I can't, I'll be honest with you. I can't exactly point out what that number is really, truly about. I don't really know mm -hmm. if you know why, but it's yeah. been pretty consistent over the last five years, right around yeah. the 16 year mark is when people complete. Um, I will say, uh, I think that the accumulation of stress by the time you've hit 16 years on the job is just massive. You know, mm -hmm. there's just massive amounts at that point. Um, I also think that it might time up a little bit. A little bit when, when people's children are no longer dependent on them. Oh yeah. And so there's a chance. Okay. Well, it's one of the preventative or the protective factors is if you have children, actually children who uh, need yeah. you um, in particular. Yeah. And so I'm kind of wondering, that's a hypothesis I have is maybe they're feeling sure. less needed in a positive way at home, but I mm -hmm. don't know that for a fact, it's just uh, a theory. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I, th I think it also leaves it a fact too, that you, you know, 
when you feel like we were joking earlier about losing my soul and everything like that, because, you know, of, of, <laughs> of, of, of the job and stuff like that. I think part of that is to, it's just a survival mechanism too. Like we were talking about uh, Nicole and, you know, her fiance that they saw this guy, the homeless guy driving a bike where, you know, you know Nicole has this while she feels bad for him. And, and as cops are like, okay, well, he's a homeless guy driving his bike in the rain. That was his choice. Where over time you you just build that cynicism. You're like, what? Okay, like let him ride the bike. I let we're going to dinner. Okay, we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> so I think a lot of that Doodles. builds, yeah. and that's mm-hmm. why I think that's why we have the re- reputation of just being stone, just stone cold. Because you know, you you build that. You know, you you feel you well, lose part of your soul. Well, Chris, if you felt everything that this job throws at you, you wouldn't be able to function. It's distracting. So mm-hmm. I think people don't realize that numbness is a survival mechanism. It's 100% of survival mechanism. And, and then in order to numb out and know that that's not really truly who you are, you've got to yeah. apply some like rationalization for your thoughts at that point. And like, oh, he chose that, right? So I think that comes into play too. And I think most people who get into law enforcement do it for the right reasons. We try to screen out the ones obviously who are, who are doing it for the wrong reasons, power hungry, yeah. et cetera. But mm-hmm, the people right. who are really genuinely getting into it to help people, when they get to a point in their career where their internal soul no longer matches who they are, right. like that's that's troubling for people. Another so. statistic that I found mm-hmm. interesting was the fact that over 80% of the law enforcement completers had reported prior to the suicide that they had relationship problems. Does that seem to weigh heavier on us as a profession compared to the rest of the population? So nowadays, hell, I mean, I think a lot of people are having relationship problems. And I'll be honest with you, there's some some data coming out that says even cops in particular, you guys have always been told that you have higher divorce rates, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's starting to shake out even Steven here in a little bit. Like really? it's about... Yeah, about the same. I mean, the general population, you guys were trendsetters, I guess, but you know, <laughs> yeah, the, right, right. the gen pop is, is right, catching right. up. Yeah, so. Gen X coming through. I have a th- I have a theory about that too that I think we become more of a throwaway society. Yeah, I think there's yeah, and, and we're just not as good at relationships, and there's no stigma around divorce anymore. So, you know, that, that's another thing. The stigma. Right. One of the benefits of stigma is it keeps families together. Sometimes, sometimes, obviously, guys. Obviously, when when that stigma is too much, then we stay in abusive relationships, and that's bad too. But it's all happy medium. Right. But I think that when we when we look at people who are suicide completers. Um, what happens is like kind of right before they get ready to commit suicide, a lot of them have some massive relationship blow up. So that can be anything just so you're aware, not just divorce or conflict. It can be death. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, kind of people leaving the home. It can, it's the, the separation. And so, um, we can go evolutionary on that. And I can tell you that people are not supposed to be lone wolves. And it's one of the most painful things people can go through is the loss of a relationship. Um, it makes you kind of like reach down the pit of your you know, core and go, oh my gosh, I'm alone. And there's a lot of panic behind that. I think that naturally happens because we there's safety in numbers. So that's like the evolutionary response. I think the other response is a lot of times we have relationship issues that are the downstream effect of trauma and being numb, Right. So. Yeah, right. Well, and then here you are being a cop struggling with your own relationship issues. And then you're at work eight, 10, 12 hours a day trying to untangle everybody else's relationship issues on the calls that you're going to. So it's like you don't even get a break from it because it's just continually reminding you you're going to domestic mm-hmm. calls and all these different things. And and it's just it, 
you, you don't even get a mm-hmm. you don't even get a, a break, which know, I from think your own stuff you're dealing with, right? But which I think to add on to that, Scott, too, is you're going to work and you're fixing yeah. it. Whether somebody right, goes to yeah. jail or whatever, but then you we get back and you're like, hell, hell, I can't even yeah. fix my own. Like right. you know, you know, as a crime prevention measure, I often thought about checking myself into the jail. <laughs> <laughs> just checking myself in tonight, yeah. pugs. <laughs> right, right. Can I just stay over? Like Otis, he just comes in and grabs the keys, like Otis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think you know. I do think, in all seriousness, though, that some of those relationship issues, like you said, Scott, about um, you go to work and all you see is relationship problems, they can make you kind of hopeless. It can make you think that any, the only right. thing out there is relationship problems, that there are no good relationships. And so it's pretty easy yeah. to go entirely dark with that and pretty negative and lose hope. And when people lose hope, that's like the last straw when we when we start approaching a high suicide risk. So hope is a thing there that, that we got to have. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's part of it. I just think that, you know, you just as, as you go and you see this and you just develop a lot of problems, I think. What I'm seeing now is a lot of departments being proactive that you can go uh, other places to, to, to get help. And, and I don't think there's that, I mean, there's that stigma. And I think one of the things that, one of the things I still see in regards to is that departments, as much as they, they're trying to help to set something up on the inside, you still have a lot of coppers, including myself, that'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to talk to anybody in my own department. No, I don't, you know, it just, it's just not going to happen. So, but I think they're, I think this is so new for everybody. I think they are, at least here, you know, they're coming to realize, you know, they're doing something. And if it's not, I don't want to say it's not working, but it's not the outcome they want. They try something different, you know. I, that that hope thing that you're talking about, too, is a, a definitely a big part of it because you you start to realize in this career you know, you, you're initially, you're maybe not thinking about it because you're, you're busy, you're like it, you're, you're new, you're not having maybe some of those different problems. And then you get further along in your career and you're trying to decide what you want to do. And then you start like thinking about retirement and all that. And that's maybe a little bit of that hope where you're, where you're thinking, Hey, I, I, I know that I'm, I got this job and I'm going to have a pension at the end and it's going to be good if everything works out. But Obviously, some people lose that or or lose focus with that. And you, one of the things also that you gave to us was that talks about those different requirements for hope. Can you tell people what kind of what that means and what those different pieces are? Yeah, I think for sure, like in order to have hope, one of the things that's really important is um, a sense of like control and predictability in your life, even if it's not necessarily real. Um, One of the things that happens, I think, with agencies that maybe have toxic leaders or toxic command Mm -hmm. is there's a lack of hope that anything will change because the people in the positions of power um, are the people in the positions of power. And so it's really hard to have hope in that sense. So, you know, a sense of control, I think, is really important. Um, Other things that make you feel a sense of hope is like feeling like you matter feeling like you have value and you've got to find that somewhere. You can't just find it at work. And I will say that's one of the things that worries me the most is when cops are only just one thing, like, man, this job will continue on and you got to be something else. So, you know, when I think of hope, I think of those types of things. Um, but yeah. I mean, I think like, like you said, I mean, my number was replaced 15 minutes after I, you know, after I turned on my papers, I mean, you know, it took them two months yeah. and there was another dog, a canine handler. So I just, I mean, I always knew, you know, that no matter where I worked, I was always replaceable. So, and I think that's, you know, that's something that I think people need other things to do too. 
And it's not a bad thing to know, like, if you just kind of accept that, like, Hey, if I don't, you know, if I'm not here tomorrow, this place isn't going to close down. It doesn't mean that I'm not important or I don't bring value to this organization. But the reality of it is, you know, I do my part to make it as good of a place as I can. And then I'm going to move on at some point and someone else is going to step in and take over that and hopefully, you know, also try to do things to make it a better environment. And, and I think that's part of like what we talked about kind of at the beginning with, like what's going on in Chicago and these problems that they're having with suicide is that everybody, I don't think they get a lot of positive feedback all the time from the community. Actually, they probably do get positive feedback from the community, but you never hear about that part because that's, they want to talk about the controversy all the time, you know? And, and I see this with officers that come from other agencies where they didn't have those kind of good relationships with the community because you, at the end of the day, you want to go out there and feel like, Hey, people appreciate what I'm doing. I know that people are going to get mad at me. They don't, you know, generally the police is, is one of those jobs that is, 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 you know, we're not always there at the best times for people, but right. when you work somewhere where the, the, the community, again, the, the, the prosecutors, the mayor, your city council, like when those people value what you do and, and tell you, even if it's small things that they appreciate what you're doing, it helps you sometimes, I think, get through some of those, maybe those little rough patches. I agree. And I'll also point out one of the things that worries me the most in these really like high volume, high, you know, high crime departments, you know, the urban core stuff mm-hmm. is that there's not enough officers so that you can spend enough time on a call so that you can yeah, get positive right. feedback. Yeah, exactly. So it, the part of it is like that even the staffing issues, I think, are leading to lower hope in the sense that they don't feel valued because they're hurrying so much that they're not even getting at, to act in line with their own values to do a good job and make sure this person feels heard, make sure this person feels like, you know, they're getting the community policing style stuff that they are so craving. And, and so as the staffing numbers go lower and lower and lower, I'm really significantly worried that also we're going to see less and less hope in officers that they matter. Mm-hmm. And that's where suicide becomes a risk. Yeah, absolutely. When I was in the army, we had this term of dealing with the terrain, which to lay people, that means there are just some things on the battlefield that you can't immediately change. And I think that the staffing and morale issues are kind of at that point uh, that it's a significant range feature that's not going to change for us as cops in anytime soon. And one could argue that it can only get worse, particularly in some of these urban centers. So basically we as a profession are going to have to learn to deal with this. And to that point, doc, there are some social issues that we impose upon ourselves, but there are also clinical ones that professionals much like yourself are going to see. Can you talk a little bit about those conditions? Sure, a hundred percent. So when we when we look at other risk factors, so the social risk factors are people who are like live alone, people who um, don't have a lot of close intimate friendships. By the way, when I say intimate, people always think sex. I'm not talking about that, okay? Although that might make you happy, right? but um, I got two zeros. I have no, I have two zeros. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> intimate emotional relationships, gentlemen. That's oh, the thing. Oh, okay? oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. <laughs> Try to get back on track. I'm like, this train is derailed. Anyway. Oh, but so, so people who are loners, of course, obviously that's a thing. When you're in your work environment and you're not accepted by your peers, that also has a huge consequence in law enforcement. Um, if you think about it, if you're not accepted by your peers, that actually makes you feel a sense of like a lack of safety too. Like, ah, oh, man, if I'm in a bind, I don't know if these people are going to help me. Yeah. Or if something bad happens to me, will they support me? Right. And so you got to be like bonded to a, to a peer group. That's one of the things I worry about with a newer generation of officers is that they don't 
necessarily have that great bond with peer groups. Um, toxic supervisors are huge. I know I talk about this every time, but I think it's that big of a deal. Like when I always draw back to the movie um, Full Metal Jacket mm-hmm. and Private Pile. Private Pile. And you got that toxic, you know, drill instructor and what happens, right? Now that goes out. Yeah. He kills himself and and takes out others. Mm -hmm. So, um, now that's very unusual by the way for cops to do, uh, is take out other people. But, um, I think that when you have a toxic supervisor, that is like so detrimental. You have no idea, like, especially on new kids, new baby cops. So detrimental. So mm -hmm. that's the stuff I'll say. But I think that'd be another show of why those why those supervisors allowed to continue knowing what the outcomes can be in multiple right. avenues. But anyway, I digress. And, and I think every agency has or has had one of those at some sure. point. So, you know what I mean? It's, oh, yeah. it's just a matter of how do you, how do you deal with that? Cause that's, yeah. that's a problem too, obviously. Right. And I mean, it's off topic a little bit, but I always point out that hurt people hurt people. So, you know, like sometimes your toxic supervisors are the ones that are considerably See, bruised that's and battered doctor, as well. That's a Dr. J. Pearl hug where I'm like, they're yeah. just assholes. They <laughs> just <Ew>. suck. <laughs> that's why I'm not a, that's why I'm not a doctor. Yeah. Right. What she's no, saying right. is so true. And to think about it from the other side of this, you become a boss in an isolated profession and then you become further isolated within that very insular world that we talked about. Yeah. I, I'm going to ask you, it's a tough gig. It's probably one of the toughest yeah. gigs in modern America right. right now, at least for keeping our society intact or helping to. Um, you're a first line supervisor during one of the most challenging times in the history of the profession. I agree. Then the clinical problems kind of go into that real quick. So obviously you've got post-traumatic stress disorder. Obviously that's kind of a hot button topic. Many people know about that. Um, the exposure to traumatic events and only seeing negative can affect people long-term being constantly hounded and bombarded by those symptoms every day of your life, of course, can make you, can, can drive you to the end, of course. Um, but then also depression and just anxiety in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the number one thing that's really been concerning and being and tied with this is that there's a tenfold increase in suicide risk when someone's a heavy drinker. So when we got alcohol problems, mm. yeah, that's a, that's a big thing to pay attention to. And I, 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 we've seen that in our profession and we've seen it in the folks that we deal with out on the right. street too. So you see that and you know, and, and it, some of us had personal experiences too, you know, with that and, and things that you've dealt with. So you combine all of that again, that's another one of those things that maybe you're struggling with that in your personal life. And then here you are seeing it thrown in your face and trying, and you're trying to give someone advice or seek help for them when you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I'm the one that actually needs some help too. You know what I mean? How come I'm not doing the, I'm telling this person that I just met two minutes ago what they should be doing and how to get help, but I'm not doing it for myself. Yeah. So I'm going to even push back on that, Scott, and say, I think what happens oftentimes so that that cops can do hard things is we separate out us versus them. Mm -hmm. And so what happens instead is we see the, you know, the call with somebody who's drunk or intoxicated and we kind of like, you know, shake our finger and look down at them and we actually kind of turn all the pressure away from us. I think that at least I'm not that happens instead. Yeah, right. And so... 
that's my impression. Now I could, I don't know any of the research behind that, of course, but I'm just, I do think that there's a degree of that that happens is see, I'm at least I'm not that bad because I have had so many cops tell me that at least I'm not that bad. I'm not a drunk. I don't have an alcohol problem. I don't drink every day. I'm like, you can be a fully fledged alcoholic and be totally functional and only be a binge drinker or only do this or that, you know? So I think that it actually, I think sometimes instead of seeing ourselves in the people we help that are, that are alcoholics, we instead go, nah, I'm not that bad. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, we can dismiss it easier yeah. actually. Right. So now that Dr. Prohaska has provided us with the statistics along with the social and clinical factors surrounding police suicide, please join us for part two, where we discuss some of the signs and symptoms of this longstanding killer of cops. If you or anyone you know needs any help, they can always dial 988 from any phone to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Police officers can call cop line at 1-800-267-5463 or go to bluehelp.org for available resources. If you would like to learn more about what Dr. Prohaska does and also apply some of her tips and tricks to your agency, you can visit the Tactical Longevity website at tacticallongevity.com. From there, you can take a two-minute agency survey and book a call with her to see how she and her team can improve your department. She is also on Instagram at 1st.responder.psychologist. If you'd like to get a hold of us to provide feedback, ask a question, recommend some show topics, or actually to just be a guest or participant, you can email us at 3CopsTalk at gmail.com. That's the number 3CopsTalk at gmail.com. If you'd like to listen to any of our previous episodes, you can go to our webpage of www.thenumber3copstalk.com. We appreciate you listening and we hope to have you back.